This is not the first time I have told Billy Lanier's story. The previous interview I did with him was for a podcast I did in college called The People You Will Meet. That episode, titled The Man with the Swastika Tattoos, won two first place awards from the Texas Intercollegiate Press Association. And given his incredible story, it's not hard to see why. In this interview, I wanted to go far more detailed into his journey, and that's exactly what we did. Billy Lanier's story is that of a man who was neglected as a child, was convicted of murder, became a ranking member of a hate-based gang, only to find peace and contentment and faith. I hope you will come with me as we meet Billy Lanier. Right, so it's a question-answer thing to where, like you were saying, well, how was it when you was in administrative segregation for so long? What yeah. was it like being involved in that environment in a riot and what have you? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't have no problem shooting from the hip just because my life's transparent. I'll be honest about everything and just okay. roll with it. All right. uh, so, so is this how everything's rolling already? Everything's rolling on <laughs> Okay. Got to get right. it set up and going, you know? Uh, so uh, I'm here with my buddy, Billy Lanier. Uh, met him a few years back at school and everything and he's got a pretty incredible story so i thought i'd let him tell it today so uh billy if, if you want to trying to decide like you were saying where to start uh you want to give sort of the brief summary you gave us in class about your life how things went and then i figured we could go back start from the beginning and go into more detail yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because until you see or get a full understanding of a person's life and their life's experiences, then it's hard to fully appreciate where they're at today. The same for us as an individual. Um, anyway, I was raised up in uh, near Kissimmee, Florida, in Orlando, Florida. Actually, the little town is called Haines City. It's called the heart of Florida. And um, I had um, three siblings older than me. Actually, I had five there was a um, sister, she passed away from double pneumonia before I was even born, and a little brother that died before I was born. Mm-hmm. So it was me and my other um, two brothers and my sister. And my mother left my dad. No one ever sat and explained to me what the reason was or anything. And um, uh, I was only like seven years old. So nobody set me down to help me to understand. All I knew is my mom's gone. I'm missing her. And... Uh, and I became rebellious at that point. And um, so as uh, the years went by, um, my dad, my brothers and sisters done moved on. My dad um, got remarried to a stepmom, and she had two boys. One was uh, one year younger than me. The other was two years younger than me. And um, we kind of fought constantly because she wanted to assume the role in my life as my mother, and I wasn't willing to accept her. Yeah. So... Um, it would always fall back on me. My daddy would come home from work, and she would voice the fights and the struggles we'd have as if it's my own fault. So that made me get even more rebellious and what have you, and I began to start running away from home at 11 years old. So here I am in Florida. I'm running away from home, uh, going down these interstates. I'd stay off the interstate so I wouldn't be seen by the police, and I'd just walk the interstate, uh, follow it through the woods, and uh, thinking that this road, it was Interstate I-4 down there in Florida, thinking that it was going to lead me to my mom. Back then, my mind didn't even wrap around how big this world was. You know, yeah. I didn't know. I, thought, I guess I was thinking that one road leads one direction. And, but I was trying to find my mom. And um, 
I finally found, I got arrested uh, as a juvenile. I had um, done some things I should not have, but it was a form of uh, survival, yeah. you know, uh, breaking into vending machines and then running out in the woods so I'd have something to eat and stuff like that. So I ended up in juvenile. And uh, matter of fact, me and two other young men were in Daytona Beach, Florida during spring break. We were all runaways. <laughs> and uh, all these college kids were taking us in their motel room, so we had a place to stay and what have you. And um, uh, we would stay in a motel room when the spring break wound down. Come to find out, these three college girls were for Canada, from Canada, and they wanted to take us with them. And uh, <laughs> how I'm old like, were you at this point? I was like twelve at this time, <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, you know what? I wanted to run away, but I didn't want to run away that far. Yeah, it's awfully <laughs> so, cold up there. So no, that was a no go. <laughs> we did not go to Canada. Um, after the beach died down and everything. Our resources were very limited, and uh, I got mm-hmm. to the point I was just hungry. And I looked over at the 7-Eleven, and I seen a sheriff pulled in at the 7-Eleven, and I looked at my buddies. I said, I don't know about y'all, but I'm fixing to get something to eat. And um, they followed me. We walked over to the sheriff, and I told him, I said, hey, I said, we're runaways, and we're hungry. And he looked at us, got out of the car. He said, well, y'all get in this car. And took us to McDonald's and <laughs> bought us something to eat and then took us to the local detention center. Well, in the detention center, they transferred us from Daytona Beach over by Bartow, which is closer to where we all lived. And I was I had a court date. And everyone's telling me in the juvenile, don't worry about it. When your dad shows up at the court, they're going to let you go home, blah, blah. They might put you on probation, et cetera, et cetera. And what was interesting is uh, I showed up in the courtroom. My dad did. And we went in front of the judge. And... Um, the judge was telling my dad, said, we can let Billy go home, but he's going to be on probation. And my dad interrupted the judge. He said, no, sir, your honor. He said, I can't do nothing with him. See what you can do with him. So I went and sat down and he walked out. I went and sat down. I was heartbroken. I didn't know, you know, my dad was right. I look back on it now. He was right. Cause if yeah. they had let me go home, I was just going to run away again. So I ended up going to juvenile, um, in Florida. I went to the, uh, Mariana, in Mariana uh, State School at the top of Florida. It's been shut down now. They come to find out they was um, abusing and killing a lot of them young men and putting them out in the woods, burying them and whatever. You could look up the history and see it. Fortunately, I wasn't one of them. I did Did you, do did you see any of that abuse? Or? Well, what I do remember is that um, guys would come in and we'd befriend one another and what have you. And then next thing you know, and they, we, I know they're doing a little bit of time, but they were very rebellious against the staff and everything. Next thing you know, they're gone. And we would think, okay, well, they left. They're going yeah. back home and stuff. Well, now I discover that, no, that wasn't the case. The staff members would actually kill them and bury them out there in the woods. Yeah. So um, uh, anyhow, I went from there to Okeechobee and then went to uh, uh, Tallahassee. I'm sorry, I went from there to Tallahassee. Uh, it was a Leon Start Center. It was like a transitional facility to uh, give you job skills, stuff like that. By then, I'm getting up there in age and just teaching you. Um, uh, it's just like a halfway house, if I may say, with all these foster parents. Yeah. And then they sent me from there to Okeechobee with a Coochie Stop Camp, which is where you lived in the middle of the woods in these uh, army barrack tents. And you went out and worked on the side of the road every day planting trees and uh, if you earned so many points throughout the week, what they'd done is uh, you had the privilege of riding these little mini bikes to these trails to the woods and stuff. That was yeah. something we looked forward to. Anyhow, um, I was scheduled to get out. 
And uh, one day when everybody went to school and to work, they told me to just pack my stuff up, go up by the main office at the picnic bench and wait for my dad. It was on a Saturday. And I did. And I sat there all day long waiting for my dad to show up. And uh, he never did. Everybody else came in from work and school and they just told me, listen, go back and make your bunk up and just we'll see if he'll come get you tomorrow or whatever. So it was the next day. Late in the day, he pulled up with my stepmom and two stepbrothers, and uh, they picked me up, and we headed home. When we pulled into the house, I'm sharing these things with you so you can get a grip on what I faced and how all of this, these feelings and stuff begin to rise up within me. Yeah. It began to develop my, my outlook on life, my yeah. worldview and what have you. So I come back, and we pulled in the driveway and in the garage – Lo and behold, my dad had done went and bought these boys pinball machines, mini bikes, and all this stuff, something he never did for any of us kids. And uh, I understand now the reason he was doing it was to win this woman's heart. You know, yeah. spoil her kids, and then you can win the woman's heart. However, um, I remember I, I got out of the car and went. My dad's stepmom went in the house, and I got on the mini bike, and I was riding it around in the yard. And she come to the door and hollered at me, hey, Bill, come here. And I pulled up over there. I'm excited riding this mini bike. And she said, get off that thing. It belongs to Larry and Michael. So I threw it down. I ended up getting in touch with my mom through a friend of hers and uh, told her if she didn't come get me, I was fixing to run away again. And my dad knew that she was coming to get me, and he had already told me that if you leave with her again, you got coming back here. So I did. I left with my mom, and it was kind of crazy. She pulled up in a, in a red Cadillac Eldorado, and she smoked Viceroy cigarettes and had a 12-pack of beer in the floorboard. My stepdad was in town at a bar playing pool, and she picked me up, and that's where we were heading. And as we're going down the road, I was, what, 13 years old? I reached and grabbed one of her cigarettes and grabbed a beer out of the floorboard. And my mother was like, what are you doing? I said, Mom, I'm doing what I want to do. And she really didn't stop me. So I guess I know now the reason she didn't try to put that authoritative parental figure in my life, become that, is because she knew I'd run from her too. Yeah. So we went to the bar, picked up my stepdad, and then had to drive to Bradenton, Florida, which is where they lived, about another two and a half hours away from there. We got there, and the following Monday, my mother took me to the school. I was in the sixth grade, and um, she enrolled me. I went to class. About halfway through the day, I walked out and walked home. And my mother asked me then, said, what are you doing home? So I said, Mom, I'm not going back to school. I'm not going back to school, and that's it. So I do know now that, that all those things, my lifestyle and everything, contributed to my mother's increase in alcoholism as well. So that was her escape, and I was just doing my own thing. Yeah. So me and my stepdad and mother, uh, we moved back over toward Haines City, Florida, and here I was, um, 16 at the time, and I met a girl. She was 14, fixed to be 15, and I ended up getting her pregnant. Uh, she lived with her older, bro older brother, and her sister-in-law, because her parents had done passed away. They were from West Virginia, but they were down there. And um, when I got her pregnant, even though I was not saved back then, um, I still had a little bit of morals about myself because now 
my mom and stepdad are talking about shooting up to Houston, Texas, where my uncle lived. And there was no way on earth I could leave that girl behind pregnant. Yeah. So I went and talked to her uh, brother and her sister-in-law and asked them, please let her come with me. I will take care of her. And um, they did. So she came. We got to um, Houston, Texas, out in East Houston, Cloverleaf, Texas. And um, we had the baby. We had the baby, and um, the doctor came out and told me it was a little boy. And even though I was still a little boy myself, I was so excited. I went over to the nursery, and I'm looking through the window waiting for them to bring him out. Me and a couple friends of mine, and they brought babies out. No, that ain't him. No, that ain't him. And a doctor came out the back, and he threw his arm around me, and he says, I'm so sorry, son. He didn't make it. He was premature. So immediately, I didn't know how to deal with those kind of issues and stuff like that. So we left. I didn't even go to the room to see her. We left, and I went straight to um, a liquor store. Friend, one of my friends was old enough, and we bought some liquor, and I just began to consume it. And the next day, I came back and seen her and was still uh, messed up. I mean, I remember distinctly laying my head on the bed next to where she was laying and throwing up from there all the way to the bathroom and everything. And um, I just wasn't allowing anyone to be a parental figure in my life. And I began to just um, navigate through life at a very young age. You know, yeah. the school of hard knocks, basically. So just to interrupt it, like, would you say at the time that some part of you did want a parental figure in your life or had you just rejected it from all the hurt before? I would say that, that you I would say wouldn't that, have accepted it. I would say that every one of us do and we want. But my stepdad, I wasn't receiving him to be a father in my life. So I had a older friend of mine. Uh, he was like a big brother. He was, um, 32 at the time. I'm 16, 17. Yeah. And, um, he, uh, he became like a big brother father figure to me. And, uh, I began to go to work with him and stuff. So he, he gave me, taught me good work ethics and all that stuff there, even though, you know, there was a lot of drinking involved and stuff like that. But, um, she ended up getting pregnant again. And that's when we had, um, uh, Dinky, I, her name was Dinky, but her name is um, Doris. Yeah, uh, it was a nickname I gave her. And uh, and then following her, we had another daughter, Margaret. And at this time, this is when um, I was working doing some uh, vinyl siding on these buildings, and I was I still wasn't done hanging with my friends. So I would go out of town doing this vinyl siding and stuff, and I'm leaving her behind with my two daughters and everything. And uh, I look back on it now, and I can understand fully that uh, I wasn't even being a father, yeah. you see? And I was making the provisions and all that stuff. And just because you're present in the home doesn't make you a father. Yeah. A father is someone that's proactively involved in their children's lives and their upbringing. So I'm guilty of that. I was not that. Uh, however, I did spoil my kids, bought them all kinds of stuff. Uh, that was my way of expressing my love to my daughters. And um, so I said that to say that while I'm out of town on these jobs, this other guy snuck into my wife's life. And as a matter of fact, I remember coming back from work one time and I seen them sitting in a, it's an apartment complex, sitting in a circle out there with my mom and stepdad and a few others. They're out there drinking and stuff. My, she's just sitting out there with the kids. But this guy is sitting really close to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I knew something then was wrong 
But I called her into our apartment and I'm talking to her about what's going on. What's up with this guy right here and everything. And when I turned around, this guy was standing at the door. So I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I went and I grabbed a butcher knife right then and, I, you know, I was a fool. And I turned around and he took off. Yeah. Well, here it is. Um, after we argued behind this guy, uh, it was a week and a half later. I come and she's gone and so are the babies. And they ended up, I knew where they were. They ended up at this other, it was ironic because it was a friend of mine uh, staying at their house. So I ended up letting it go and I began to drink it up and party it up and try to numb the pain from all this. Uh, I did get to see my girls. She would bring the girls for me to see. I'd keep them like a few days, a week or so. And as a matter of fact, <clears throat> I had my daughters for two weeks before this incident happened. And I didn't hear from their mother or anything. And I was okay with that. My daughters are with me. Yeah. And I remember it was on a Friday. Um, she came to the door, knocked on the door. I was like, hey, come in. And my oldest daughter, well, both of them were playing in the floor playing with some Barbie dolls. And as soon as she looked up and seen it was her mother, she ran and jumped on the couch next to me right here and pushed her right arm behind my back, holding on, clinging to me. And, uh, Daddy, I don't want to go. Daddy, I don't want to go. And I'm like, honey, what's what do you want to go for? And she, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. And her mother's like, Dinky, you get your stuff. We're going home, you know. And I what ended up transpiring was the furthest thing from my mind. But I got my daughter and took her back there to my room. She grabbed my fingers, and I walked her, come here. And she stood in front of me. Now, in order to understand this, I have to tell you what transpired about a month and a half before that. I had been pulled over for traffic tickets. I never had a driver's license at that time. And I went to jail uh, for a week. And while I'm in jail, my mom brought my daughter to see me through mm -hmm. a plexiglass. And that stuck with her mind. And, uh, you know, because my mom, after the visit, she's explaining to my daughter, your daddy's in jail, and he'll be home next week. Blah, blah. And so um, when I took her to the room that day and she stood in front of me, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and she held her head down. And I said, baby girl, you tell your daddy. I said, is that man spanking you or anything like that? You tell me. You tell your daddy. I grabbed her by her chin to look her in the eyes, and she just pounded. She said, daddy, I don't want you to go to jail. And I held her in my arms. I was like, honey, daddy ain't going to go to jail. You know, it's okay. It's okay. I said, but you do know if you don't go with your mother, that's what she's going to do. She's going to call the police, and they're going to come and make you go anyways. And, man, I'll never forget that. That was, this was on a Friday. So she took my daughters home with her. And um, she worked at some laundromat sort of across the street from where they lived. And... She went that Friday night to work and left my daughters with this guy. And she met up with another guy and left with him and didn't come back home till Sunday. I had no idea. So Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, she's off with some other guy, and my daughters are at home with this guy. Mm -hmm. So when she came on, on Sunday, I'm at my place with some friends and their children. We're out here barbecuing in front of my place. Next thing I know, my mom and stepdad pull in the driveway, and they got her in the back seat, my, my kid's mom. And all my mom said is, Bill, something happened to Dinky. We're on our way there right now. So what ended up happening is when she came back home Sunday, 
and she walked in the door. She seen what had happened to my oldest daughter, and he was trying to get to her, and she took off and left the babies and went to my mom's, and then my mom and them came. and then they, So <clears throat> they're back over there. Where they lived was in a... Um, it was like a, um, it was a car wash, and there was a mobile home on the premises, and they lived there. And what they did is took care of the car wash to uh, supplement their rent. And um, so I told a friend of mine, Bubba, here, let's go over there. They done took off. By the time we pulled up, we pulled in one of the car wash bays, and um, I looked over. There was an ambulance sitting there. There was a Harris County cop car sitting right in front of us, and it was getting almost dark, and. I seen the guy in the back of the Harris County cop car. So I went over to the car and I had a butcher knife with me then and tried to open up the back door. I was going to jump in the back seat and get foolish right then. Well, my mom looked around the officer. The officer turned around and seen what was happening. He ran over there with his gun drawn. Get away from that car. Get away from the car. Well, when I raised up, I threw the knife under the car. He didn't see it. And he started putting two and two together pretty fast. And he said, are you that baby's dad and i said yes i am he said son get away from that car get away from that car and my mom's hollering it was so much chaos my mom's hollering bill i'm riding with the ambulance to texas children's hospital etc and uh she did she took off with them and i'm begging the officer at the time to put me in the car with this guy and of course he's like son i can't put you in the car with her and I'm breathing in his face and everything because I'd been drinking. Mm -hmm. And I told him, man, P.I., I'm drunk. Put me in the car with him, please, please. He said, son, I can't do that. I said, well, let me talk to him. He locked all the doors except for the driver's door and walked to the front of his car while I leaned in the driver's seat. And all I remember looking back there and telling him is that uh, you do know your days are numbered, right? And we left. We took off to Texas Children's Hospital and uh, sat in this big waiting room on these bean bags. All of my friends came with their kids and stuff that used to play with my kids and everything. And now my other daughter got taken to CPS. This one here is in Texas Children's Hospital. And the mother got taken to jail for neglecting the children. Mm. Um, I'm in this waiting room. I mean, it was about a good three hours. And a doctor finally comes out and he said, Who in the world is this baby's daddy? And I stood up. I said, I am. He said, son, under no circumstance would I let a parent see their child in this condition. He said, but all she keeps asking for is our daddy. Are you going to be strong? I'll take you in there if you are. And I'm, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm good, I'm good. Well, I walked in there, and she was in a baby crib. And when I leaned over the crib, her whole body from head to toe was bandaged like a mummy, except for this portion of her face and her little bitty hands. And I leaned over the crib, and my hand dropped like this here, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, Hey, baby girl, are you okay? And her right hand reached up and squoze those two fingers, which are the two fingers I used to walk her with everywhere I go. And that was the moment that I forgot who I was. That's when my life spun out of control. I mean, all I thought about is you hurt my baby. Mm -hmm. So I left there after visiting with her, and my daughter got taken into temporary CPS custody as well. And I was the only one. My mother, nobody could, just me, uh, go visit my daughters at a Catholic charities place for four hours every Sunday. And the foster parents, the temporary foster parents, they would bring the kids. I'd meet. We had this big old room. We would sit and play toys and all this stuff for a couple of hours. And then I'd have to leave. And uh, when I would leave there... I would immediately stop at a Diamond Shamrock store, and um, I had a fake ID and all that stuff. And 
and I'd begin to drink all the way back home. And that's what I did is every day I began to drink drugs, whatever it was to take my mind out of its original state to keep me from facing that pain. That's what I did only to wake the next morning and realize those things I thought I was drowning could swim. But when I get up and look on the coffee table and see pictures of my daughters and on the wall and stuff, man, it just hurts so bad. I didn't know how to deal with it. And um, so I was seeing them every Sunday for four hours. And then CPS came and seen my house. I was working for the largest sheet metal company in Houston at the time, McCorvey Sheet Metal in Galena Park, Texas. The owner of it was surprisingly uh, putting me through college to be a journeyman. And I had never even graduated or nothing. He just had the money. He was able to make it happen. I mean, I never even made it past the sixth grade. That was when I quit, and that was it. Yeah. So um, as, I'm, as I'm working for a McCorvey Sheet Metal, the CPS came. They looked at my house. They said, son, don't you worry about it. You're going to get them babies. We just got to get you on the docket. So as I'm waiting to get on this court doctor to get my daughters, um, a friend of mine came over and told me the guy, Larry, had got out on bond. And my next question was, where is he at? And when they told me, we parted a little bit. When they left, um, the only thing on my mind was to go and get revenge. So that's what I did. As I made my way from where I lived over to their place, it was an apartment complex, duplex, and I knocked on the door, and as soon as they answered, uh, I went in and murdered them both, the guy and his uncle. And honestly, I had so much anger and hate inside of me and everything. My mind was made up. If they had a dog, cat, goldfish, anything that was in that apartment that lived, it had to die. Mm-hmm. So I did this, and then I came back home and uh, disposed of the weapons and all that. And uh, what was interesting is a friend of mine showed up after this had happened, and I had the weapons there. And he was like, did you go over there? I'm like, nope, nope, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I need to ride. He's like, what? And he's steadily trying to ask me about this. So I jumped in the car with him, and we went down Interstate 10, San Jacinto River, and I threw the stuff out of the window into the river. And <clears throat> after that had happened, I took off and went to Florida, me, my mom, and my new wife. Uh, I mean, I done gave up on a, I, I, I just figured I'm fixing to get busted. You know, this this is not going to go well. Mm-hmm. So we took off, went to Florida, and while I was in Florida, I come to find when I came back, and then sure enough, I put my stepdaughter in school, and then the detectives ran down on me one day and got me, and I didn't under I played it off like, man, what's this all about? Oh, this is a little more than you think it is. So they got me downtown, put me in this room, began to question me, show me pictures of the crime scene and all this, and I was like, I don't know anything about it. I stayed in complete denial the whole time. And then they um, showed a video of uh, the guy that I'm telling you came to my house and took me to drop the stuff off. Come to find out, while I'm in Florida, he's selling drugs. And then he gets busted, and then he tells the police he knows who done this. Yeah. So uh, to get him a break. So the cops and everybody, they had no idea who committed this crime until he mentioned me. And then they began to see that this is a guy that did this to my daughter. So they was able to put a motive together and everything. Then folks are not stupid. They know, they know their job really well. So anyhow, even though I stayed in denial, I stayed in the Harris County Jail for a little over four years, almost five years, um, fighting this case until finally I pled out to a 30-year sentence. 
And back then, under the 70th legislature, you do a quarter of your time, then you're eligible for parole. Mitt and I had to do seven and a half years. You're eligible for parole. As long as you keep your nose clean, you'll make parole. You'll get out. So that was my way of thinking. And it um, <clears throat> didn't end up that way. So I took the 30 years, and I went on down to prison. And um, I went down there as a very angry, bitter, resentful young man. And uh, every opportunity I had to uh, vent that anger, I seized it. And uh, it was during that time while I was down there, all my anger and stuff began to, and my rebellion against authority and others and certain races and all that stuff. Um, it was recognized, and next thing you know, I was recruited into a very large prison gang. And uh, it wasn't a matter of months. Here I was, the vice president of this gang. And I look back on it right now, and I, I think, what was I thinking, man? I didn't want nobody to be a father to me, right? Yeah. I didn't want nobody to be any kind of authoritative <clears throat> figure in my life out here in society. So then you go to prison and you're going to allow somebody else to govern your life. That was kind of stupid to me, yeah. you know, as I, as I begin to. So <clears throat> while I'm down there, um, you know the story. I'm in Amarillo, Texas, and we got into a riot. And in this riot, a guy almost lost his life. He got life flighted out of there. The warden and the gang intelligence um, got me to their office and showed me three statements in front of me by these guys that were supposed to have been my brothers, bro. Yeah. And I recognized their handwriting, and they were just pointing the finger saying that I was the just cause for this guy being life flighted out of there. And that's when they told me, he said, if he dies, you're going to be indicted for capital murder. If we don't get the death penalty, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. So they put me in cuffs and they escorted me to this seg cell. And um, when they got to the cell and opened the door, as soon as they took the cuffs off, before they could close that door, I promise you, I was in the back of that empty cell. I hadn't even had my property and got on my knees and I cried out to a God I did not know. And all I asked him was, Lord, I don't know you, but I'll get your word and get to know you and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Even if you want me to serve you from the confines of this penal institution, I will serve you. I've just got one thing to ask. And I said, let's let that man live. Well, the man lived. So that kept me from being uh, charged on a free world level to where it was going to get me more time or the mm -hmm. death penalty. And I still had to suffer the consequences of my actions, rightfully so. So I went to uh, administrative segregation. I don't know if you know what that looks like, but I started off on Coalfield unit. It's an eight by 10 cell. Um, where you got a little slot in your door and they bring you your breakfast, lunch, and supper through a slot. And I was there for seven years. I did like three years at Coalfield Unit in Palestine, Texas. Then they, when the Texas 11 escaped, I don't know if you remember that. There was, I, I there was a big the, escape yeah. down there in Beeville. I know the name, but well, when I've they, watched too many documentaries to remember which one it is. You know? right. When they <laughs> escaped, um, they started moving a bunch of people around and they took me and a few other guys because Coalfield is really maximum security. And they brought some of their family members, you know, cousins and stuff to the people that escaped and locked them up. So they transitioned us. And I went to Estill High Security in Huntsville and um, remained in that cell there for the rest of the seven years. And, of course. Uh, so if you don't mind me asking, did you have any yard time or anything during that seven years? Well, what they did is uh, on uh, Estill High Security. The officers, just being honest, they did not like having to get you out of your cell. They did not have no windows to see out. Mm -hmm. uh, they did not like to 
get you out of your cell. They did have cages outside, and what it looked like is there's bars, and then there's chain link fence around it, and you have a pull-up bar, you got a basketball hoop, and you got a basketball, and you're in that little square by yourself. It's about a 15 by 15 square, yeah. and then there's squares around it, and you could talk to the other inmates, convicts, whatever you want to call it. Uh, while you're out there, and it's for one hour, and it's supposed to be one hour a day. Well, the officers, um, they would they have to do shakedowns, random shakedowns in your cell, make sure you ain't got no knives or contraband and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So what they would do is they'd come around, and they would ask you if you want to trade your recreation for a shakedown. In other words, if you don't go to rec, we won't shake your cell down. So that seemed to be more profitable for us because many of the officers were um, hard-nosed. So if you chose to go to wreck, which put a burden on them, then when you came back, your house would be tore up. Your sale would be tore up. I mean, your yeah. family photos tore in half. All in your, your, I mean, it looked like a tornado ran through it. So basically, I went to wreck maybe once a week. Yeah. When I knew there was good officers there and I didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff, I would go to wreck. But that was – that was your supposed to get one hour a day out but you really don't so how do you keep your sanity for these seven i'm gonna t- <laughs> it's interesting you ask that because i know for a fact the only way i did is see while i was in prison uh, in 99 i'd also married a woman while i was in there by proxy mm-hmm. she went to conroe and everything visit my mom brought my mom to see me and stuff like that so she knew my mother and um uh, while i'm in seg my mother died. She left me a really large uh, insurance policy. Well, the and I needed to make provisions, a way to take care of her funeral and things of that nature. Well, I'm married to this woman here, so um, I signed everything for her to put it in the bank, and this, you know, it would be there for when I got out and what have you. Well, there was like eight thousand dollars taken out to pay for my mother's funeral and what have you, and others contributed, and. Um, I'm in SEG, mind you, and then April the 10th, 2005, I seen my other daughter. Um, She was almost 15 years old. I seen her, and then April the 13th, that Wednesday, I found out she died in a house fire. So mind you, all this, while I'm in SEG, I'm all alone at 8 by 10. My mother died, my daughter died. And a week later, there was papers slid up underneath my door, and it was divorce papers from that woman. And she done went to the bank and took all the money, and she was gone. So I do know when I went to SEG, I, li- I fulfilled my commitment to God in that I was going to get his word and begin to serve him. So this was a couple years before these incidents you know, came back to back. I began to develop a relationship with God. And it was as if, I look back on it now, as if, he, as if he was preparing me for these things that were going to happen in my life so that I could handle them much differently than I did before. Mm-hmm. So when it happened, um, that day I got the uh, parole papers, it was you know like three days later before I knew she took the money from the bank because I hurried up, I wrote my bank, I had some closed account, et cetera, et cetera, and they wrote me back and told me that the account had been closed and all the money was gone. So that's the day I walked around that cell looking up and I was asking God, I said, God, how in the world could this woman do this to me? She knew my mother. She knows my mom left me that money to do something with my life. So I was doing something with my life by helping her out, helping her kids out. And I just went on and on and on. But when I shut up long enough to hear from God, 
his words to me were, now you know what it's like to be victimized. And it was just as clear as me and you, me and you sitting here talking. And when that, that word was spoken to me, I went to the back of that cell and I buried my face in the mattress. I remember it as if it was yesterday. And God took me down memory lane all the way from my childhood. And for everyone he'd remind me of that I had hurt, right? Not necessarily physically, but emotionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at my running around rebellious life, what it did to my family. You know, sure, they were hurt and wounded by all that. But for everyone he'd remind me of, I would ask for forgiveness. And I stayed on my face in that mattress for about 45 minutes. And then when I stood up to my feet, the first thing that came across my mind was John eight thirty six: When the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And I walked around that cell, and I mean, it was like a big load that just lifted off of me. And even though I was still in the confines of that penal institution and in that administrative cell, I'm telling you, I'd never been so free in my entire life. So um, after the seven years was up there, I'm steadily, I'm, I'm listening to Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers, and Tony Evans ministries on my little clock radio. And I've, I've still to this day got all my composition books of ministry composition books. I just begin to write what God had put on my heart in relation to his word and my studies. And I was engaged in a couple biblical studies as well while I was in there. And that was my heartbeat. Mm. That was my routine along with working out while I was in SEG. And that's what helped me keep my sanity. It was none other than God. God helped me keep my sanity, and I kept my mind busy. Because the truth be known, I know of three guys while I was in SEG, within two years in, they killed themselves because they couldn't stand it. Yeah. And there's a lot of guys right now when they come out of prison after doing SEG time, they get a crazy check. You know, because of the impact it had on their lives. So it was none other than God yeah. that brought me through that. And when I come out of SEG, I had to go to Ramsey One Unit in Rochester, Texas, to go through this program. It's called the GRAD, Gang Renouncement Disassociation Program. It was part of their protocol in order to uh, put you back, place you back in general population. So I went through the program. It was really, really interesting that. Um, I, I met the chaplain there. I met a good friend of mine, Jeff Shepard. I met a friend of mine, Michael Dickens, and Donnie Ship, whom are still in my life right now. Um, and I began to, begin to go down to the chapel's office. We met him, Mr. Kessler, and then I went to the church every time the doors would open. And I remember distinctly going down there. Now, the chaplain didn't know me that well, other than by reputation by the people around there. It was interesting how all the guys gave me a nickname. My old nickname used to be Cloverleaf. That was where I was from. But then they started calling me Bible Man. (laughs) Bible Man or Sin Slayer, every which one. And uh, uh, anyhow, so I sat there in church one day, and the volunteers didn't show up. And that's when Chaplain Kester looked, and he said, Hey, Brother Billy. He said, the volunteers are not coming today. Do you have a word for us? And there's where my first time I got behind the podium and knew that's where God called me. So I got behind the podium and ministered to the guys. As I went through that program, they were fixing a birth. Marlia Baird and Ken Baird were fixing a birth, a faith-based dorm on the unit next to there, which is the Terrell unit. And I was invited to come over there and uh, actually had the privilege and honor 
me, Donnie, Mike, the ones I mentioned, and, and Trent Dugas, there's a few of us, um, went over there and birthed one of the first faith-based dorms in Texas prisons. It's still going today. It was a privilege and an honor. And it's an 18-month program that the guys go through, and what they do is teach these curriculums and these classes, biblical studies, and it's a basic introduction into the Christian faith and hoping to disciple men so that when you finish the program, they can place you on whatever unit they desire, what have you, and you'll continue to disciple others, which is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's my understanding they have uh, faith-based dorms all over Texas prisons, yeah, which is wonderful. You know, it, I, I actually uh, I know a lady who was in it. She used to be our neighbor. Actually, really? yeah, not. I don't know if it was she would teach specifically that one, but I don't know if she taught a class. But I know while she was in there, uh, she was in one of those dorms or what? Oh, whatever. she was incarcerated. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, she didn't. She didn't teach oh, a class. Okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, man. When you see somebody who's really changed your life, because uh, I won't use her name or anything. I don't know if she wants it out there, but. We we lived next to this lady uh, for I don't know how many years, and we we saw that house go from old lady's house to she moved in. Then it was a crack house, you know. Oh wow! And j- just so are you the, saying the change you see in somebody's life when she comes out of jail? We're talking to her, and my dad just throws out there, "You want to go to church with us?" You know, expecting to be turned down. She's like, yeah, sure. And then just the change you see in somebody's life when... So she's on, doing this, well now? Yeah. I mean, she's, okay. Just, you don't think, you almost disregard that person in your mind, even though as a believer you're not supposed to, but you're like, what are they going to do with their life at this point? Yeah. <laughs> it's. I'll tell you what, Um, I know of numerous guys, uh, when I came out and started managing a transfit transitional house in a third ward, Houston, fertile ground, Christian transformational center. Um, that was a big challenge for people. If there's anything that I miss about prison right now, mm-hmm. it's that seven years I spent in that seg. And that's the God's honest truth. I miss it to this day. Not enough to where I'm going to go commit a felony and go back to prison, <laughs> but I miss it because that was the time that God got a hold of my life and prepared me for everything that was in store in the future, including out here in the free world. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got out, I was just determined that you might be living in prison, but prison don't have to live in you. And I've seen so many guys, I've seen the recidivism. So many guys would get out, come back, get out, come back. And I'm watching them and I'm listening. What was it that brought them back? Well, a lot of it was stinking thinking, you know, insanity, excuse me, insanity, doing the same things, expecting different results. Yeah. And always thinking you're going to get better at what you're doing. But what's really interesting is that while I was in SEG and beginning to develop a relationship with God, I noticed changes taking place in my life that I didn't have nothing to do with. And one of the first things he did for me is he cleaned up that filthy mouth. And I began to face situations and challenges with other inmates, with the guards and stuff like that, to where three years before that, I would have responded so much differently with anger and outrage and stuff like that. But God enabled me and empowered me to handle those situations with love and grace and patience. Yeah. And it was so contrary to the person I used to be. And, and it's not by works. I mean, it wasn't something that I've done. And one of the things I tell people all the time today is just submit yourself to God. 
and let him do the work. Don't work the word and stop trying to have something to do with something that has nothing to do with you. So I guess my question to that is how many uh, how many years did it take you to submit to that? It was right. Uh, I was in there already for like 15 years before this happened. You know, I yeah. did 22 years. And it was like 15 years, 14, right at the 15-year mark when all that happened. And then... Um, I guess uh, I, I was saying more of the change in how you started handling things and stuff. How, yeah, how, it was like uh, two and a half years, two yeah. and a half years into immersing myself in the Word of God yeah. that I began to see, yeah. And, and I also seen, now that's the good side, but I also seen the favor that I got. When I came out of SEG and went over to the faith-based dorm, I'm working. I, I, they took me to the kitchen. Classification told me I'm going to be working in the kitchen. So I went to the kitchen. This uh, this sergeant that was sitting there, Lord forgive me, I cannot remember her name. This has been several years ago. But she was a precious woman. She just sat there and said, uh, all right, Lanier, where do you want to work? In the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, what's the job that nobody likes? She said, that's the scullery, you know, where you clean the dishes and stuff whenever. Yeah. And I said, that's where I need to be. She said, no, you don't want to be there. Let me put you on a linebacker, you know, at easy jobs. I said, nope, that's where I need to be. So I took the worst of the worst job in the kitchen to humble myself and done it and done it with a grateful heart. Next thing you know, was doing breakfast. I had all the guys in the scullery area singing praises and hymns while we're in there the whole time. Time would fly, we'd get it done, and hey, it was just a, it was a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah. But in doing that, the guards and everybody was watching. They could see this. And uh, to the point to where it ended up getting me favor without even asking about it. Like the kitchen captains and stuff, they'd say something, hey, Lanier, is fixed to be count time. I'm going to send everybody else back there, man. We're going to sit back here and make some pastries and some fried chicken and stuff. Mm. So me and a couple of cooks, that was their favorites. I was just invited to come be a part of that, to sit there when everybody else is gone, to be part of this blessing, if you may call it, you know? They yeah. recognized it. And then we'd sit there and eat, and they'd just make inquiries about my faith. And we would have some wonderful biblical discussions uh, during those times, which helped me to mature and grow. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're uh, in the faith-based storms and stuff. Uh, how long are you there until you're finally released? Well, what happened in that um, faith-based dorm is it was an 18-month program. So I went through the first one, and then they wanted me and a couple others that I mentioned to stay behind when the next group came in so that we could help, you know, mentor and and help them through. Mm -hmm. And after that one, we had another chaplain that came in to the unit. They switched chaplains, and he was a kind of difficult guy. Um, It's my understanding his wife was a chaplain on other units, and uh, they say she was a wonderful gal, but this guy, he was really challenging. So he began to do away with a lot of the privileges and everything pertaining to this faith-based dorm, and uh, it, it got kind of ugly. So us guys that stayed behind, he got with the warden and had him take us, move us off that dorm into regular population, which I was fine with. Mm-hmm. So they moved me into a dorm. It was a 130-man dorm, and it was interesting. I come out there, and I'm upstairs in my cubicle and you could hear at night man the same thing i used to hear guys would get in a fight and what they do is they go over there to the shower area where they're out of view of the cameras and they would go to fighting and um uh, i remember one day i heard them fighting down there and everybody's hollering and stuff people and i walked to the edge of the stairs look straight down in the shower and i see them now mind you 
the old Billy was the type that when I seen violence and fights and stuff, I wanted to get in there with it to either win, lose, or draw. I just wanted to get in there with it. This distinct time, man, as I stood at the top of the stairs and looked down there, I seen the guys just beating each other. You could hear the flesh banging and stuff. And I was like, Lord, look what your children are doing to each other. Now, the guys knew me. So then I shot down the stairs and went into that shire, and I pushed them apart. I said, man, y'all stop this. What are y'all doing? What's this about? What are y'all doing? And it's about the stupid TV, Jerry Springer or something, you know. <laughs> they were arguing who's going to watch this and this. And, man, God used me to dissolve that situation at that time, all the other people around. And next thing you know, the next day, I started a Bible study right down there in the day room. And numerous guys came over there because many of the guys that were there that had yet to find change, they knew me for the old me. And they're seeing this new me, and they're like, wow, man, this is crazy. So they wanted to come, even if it's just to be a spectator or be a – yeah. So So I get – and just brief – sorry to break up your thing, but just with your gang affiliation and stuff beforehand, how how dangerous was this for you or if you're in another unit and you're fine – well, here's what was interesting is when I walked away from that gang, literally thousands throughout the system walked away from it because once they found out that I walked away from it after knowing how much I was dedicated to it, not all, all of them knew why I walked away. Yeah. You know, God was already dealing with me about it without me acknowledging God. He was dealing with me about it in that he was giving me wisdom as I would sit in my bunk at night and go to thinking, well... Why would you come to prison and join a gang and now you want somebody that's in prison, done ruin their lives, they're down there for the rest of their lives, and they're going to dictate and govern your life while you're in here? You know, that's insanity. Just stand up on your own feet. You know so what I mean? So was, this was you thinking before the change? Yeah, yeah, right before that riot happened. Yeah. You know, I'd sit back and just ponder that. But see, now I'm in a leadership, right? I'm the vice mm. president of this gang. And But yet it still made me think with these guys, man, why are you becoming a part of this? And here I am. I'm the one that's dictating and governing what you're fixing to do next, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I'm thinking, that's kind of crazy, you know. <laughs> so you wouldn't abide by mom and dad's rules. You wouldn't listen to society's laws. So you found yourself incarcerated with a bunch of people that didn't abide by the society's laws. And now you're going to listen to one of them? Yeah. No, no, that's insanity. So um, anyhow, yeah. Yeah, so what that chaplain did is he had me transferred from that unit. He uh, used the excuse on an IOC, it's called Inner Office Communication, and he said that I had became too familiar with the volunteers that come in, right? So that is a potential security breach, fine. God knew what he was doing. So here's what was crazy is I got transferred. They came to me and told me, hey, Lanier, you're on the chain. I'm like, okay, what's all this about? Whatever. Okay, so I packed my stuff, came up there, and they said, uh, you're going to Huntsville. Okay. So the next morning, caught the bus, went to Huntsville. We stayed the night there. And the next morning, you had to go through the back, and you got this big old cage. It's called the bullpen. And you go in there, and as the officers go through their list, they call your number out, and you come to the gate, and they tell you what unit you're being transferred to, and then you have to get on which bus accordingly. Mm-hmm. So I went up there, and... They called my name, and I went up there, 6767780. They said, um, you're going to Coalfield. And you don't get a chance to ask them, well, why? What's going on? No. When they tell you, move out the way next. Yeah. 
So I moved out the way, and I'm thinking of myself, thinking, oh, my God, this ain't good. Because when I was on Coalfield before, when I was, in, I was in there in population as well, and Coalfield is the largest maximum security unit in Texas prisons in Palestine, Texas. And I'm telling you, a day without blood was like a day without sunshine there. And if you even look it up on the web right now, you'll see anywhere from roughly 65 to 80% of the guys that's there right now are never, ever going home. So you can imagine the environment that sets the tone for. Um, anyhow, when I was there before, there was lots of violence, fights. Many of the people, when we just made eye contact, the fight was on. Mm-hmm. So they put me on the bus. They took me there, and they immediately take you to this. Um, it's a barbershop area where they lock in there until classification, the ward and them come together. Then you go before classification. They look through your file, and then they tell you where you're going to be housed on the unit and where you're going to work. So I'm walking in this barbershop waiting on them, and I'm going back and forth, and I'm struggling with myself, my old self, and the new self. And I'm asking God, God, why in the world am I here? What's going on? And I was struggling whether I'm going to get in survival mode because these folks over here, they can smell weakness that fast. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm going to get in survival mode or am I going to trust God? Finally, a peace came over me. I said, well, I'm going to trust you, God. So they called me into classification. One of the wardens knew me. He remembered me, especially when he opened up my file. He seen my name. He seen the reports from the before, the disciplinary history and stuff. He looked at his secretary. He said, look at this. Looked at me. He said, are you going to be okay on this unit? I said, yes, sir, I'm going to be all right. He said, now, look, there ain't going to be no problems, no trouble. And I said, no, sir, everything's good. I said, I'm going to be honest with you, warden. I said, I don't know what God has for me here to see, but I'm here to see it. He said, you sure about it? I said, yes, sir. He said, all right. He housed me. I went out there, and I went to work in the kitchen out there as well. And that following Sunday, now, mind you, the times I was on Coalfield before, I had never, ever stepped foot in the chapel. Okay, I heard about it, how nice it is and all this stuff, but I never stepped foot in there. That was the last thing on my mind. Well, this time, Sunday rolled around, and I went to the chapel. And it uh, it a seat like a little over 700 guys in there. And then you got the volunteers that come up and minister. But I'm going to tell you, that is to this day, it is one of the most beautiful chapels you've ever seen in your life. And it was packed. And I sat on the left side about three-quarters of the way back because it was already filling up. And they had the worship service at the beginning of the service and then after the service. After the service was over, they entered the worship service. And I'm looking in front of me, looking around, seeing about people that I recognize. And what was really, really interesting was I'm raising my hands in worship. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing some of the very same guys that we didn't see eye to eye with raising their hands. So while I was gone and I was in SEG going through my experiences, God was dealing, dealing with them at the same time as well. So the service is over. We're breaking up. We're having to head to the door. They're calling dorms, different dorms off at a time for you to come out. They don't let you just everybody come out and flood the hall. Yeah. And when we'd make eye contact with these guys, we didn't, and I'm telling you, it was nothing but love and hugs. We were hugging each other, man, like, hey, brother, what's going on? man? There was no fight, none of that. It was, yeah. it was beautiful. It was a beautiful sight. So I seen then what it was God wanted to show me is that while he had me in the belly of the cell working on me, he was working on these brothers as well. You had mentioned going in survival mode versus just trusting God. So what, what's the difference there? 
The difference is, is that when you first come to that unit and you're not saved, um, survival mode means saving your pride, if I may say. Um, oftentimes, at these maximum security units, I'd say all the time, you're going to be tried, whether it's by your own race or another race or what have you, to see if you're weak. Mm-hmm. That requires uh, for you to be able to stand up for yourself. Okay. Once you've established that reputation of standing up for yourself, you pretty well got it made. But if they smell any kind of what they call weakness on you, they'll take advantage of you uh, to the point of making you pay protection or to the point of uh, sexually violating you, yeah. whatever you, whatever it is. I mean, I thank God for prisons and institutions because I met people down there until God gets a hold of their lives. That's where they need to be. And that's the God's honest truth, including me before I got saved. That's where I belonged. I didn't belong out here with all those issues in my life. And I thank God for every day, all 22 years that I spent in there. So I'm back on Coalfield. I done came up for parole eight times and I was denied every time. So I'm on Coalfield. I experienced the chapel. I got involved in every Bible study and everything when I'm there and stuff. And I'm working in the kitchen in the scullery on this unit as well. And, uh, man, you wouldn't believe the favor there, the kitchen captain and all of them, the sergeant and all of them. When we would finish cleaning up after the breakfast ran through, they would, have, they would open up the grills for me to go back there and just cook us whatever. And uh, we'd all sit there and eat and what have you. So... They passed a law to where after you've done 20 years, a commissioner has to come see you. There's only uh, 12, it's 15 commissioners throughout the state of Texas. These uh, are comprised of three individuals in each region. And what they do is they vote whether you're getting out or not. Okay. Your unit parole counselors, all they do is fill out a report. Okay. What's your address that you're going to go to? What's your plans? You completed any educational programs while you're down there? They put that down and they just send it to them. They don't have no kind of impact on whether you're getting out or not. So, but after you do 20 years, they passed the law to where um, one of the commissioners had to come and personally visit with you. And I remember him to this day, he's still there, Mr. Paul Henserling. I got a lay in which is a paper they give you the night before to tell you if you're going to medical the next day or if you're going, you know what I mean, to the library or wherever it is. So I got one. I couldn't recognize what it was for. And I asked the guy in the cubicle next to me. He had done been locked up like 40 years. And I said, man, what is this? He said, man, you're going to see the commissioner. So I'm like, okay. The next day I went in to that barber shop where they loaded up. There was about eight of us in there waiting for this commissioner to come there. And then we'll go in the office one at a time and talk to him. Well, I'm sitting there just praying and thinking. He showed up, and I was the first one he called in there. I went into his office, and he said, Well, son, I see you're in here for murder. You want to tell me about it? I said, Sir, I want to tell you everything that was going on in my life before this murder, through the murder, and what's been going on in my life down here in this prison. And he sat down. Usually you don't get for five, ten minutes with him. Yeah. I sat there for 45 minutes with this guy. And I, that was the first time in my entire life that I became totally transparent about every aspect of my life. I even told him things that could have been detrimental to a decision-making for my parole, my gang activity, all that. Mm-hmm. I laid it on the table before him. And um, afterwards, he stood up and he shook my hand. He said, well, you'll hear something in two or three days. I said, yes, sir, I appreciate it. So I went back to the barbershop. Another guy goes in there, but what they're doing is you got to go back there 
and you have a guard that comes and just lets so many people, like I told you, they don't just let everybody run them all. Yeah. They say, all right, you can go on back, and then you go back to your dorm, wherever you're going. But when I sat down, all these other guys in there reminded me of the old me that last eight times I came up for parole is because they were coming and asking me, say, hey, does he ask you this? Does he ask you this, this? Because what you want to do is you want to premeditate a response to any question that's asked you. Why? Because I want your favor. Yeah. Right? I want to tell you all these grandiose things. I didn't do that. So what I told them guys that day, I said, you know what? If he wasn't a man of God, he didn't understand a word I said anyway. Said, oh, man, there you go, Lanier, with that stuff. Okay. So I left. That night, we went on lockdown because of another riot on that unit. A guy got killed, so they lock us down to investigate everything. And it was two days later, they came and got me, two officers. When you're on lockdown, if you're going to medical or anyway, anywhere, they have two officers come get you and escort you there and escort you back. So two officers came and got me. They escorted me to the parole office on the unit. And I walked in there. He wasn't in there yet. And I'm looking on the walls. And I see these pictures on the wall of biker pictures. But come to find out, it was biker pictures. But this unit parole counselor, he was part of the tribe of Judah, Christian mm -hmm. Biker Club. So I'm looking at that. And he comes in and he sits down on the other side of his desk. He said, well, son, he said, um, how'd your visit with Mr. Hensling go? I said, you know what? I'm pretty confident it went well. I said, that was the first time in my entire life that I was totally honest and transparent. And I wasn't, as my previous times, well, my first six times coming up for parole, I was all excited and anxious, thinking, ooh, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do all this yeah. stuff here. This time, I was relaxed because I was just like the Apostle Paul. I was to the point, whether I'm there or whether I'm here, I'm going to serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that, that was it. Ministry was wherever my feet set. Right? Your outward circumstance, situation, all that there never dictates or determines your inward disposition. Okay? That was, that was where I was. So I told him, I said, you know, I think the visit went pretty well. And then I told him about what happened in the barbershop afterwards. I said, you know, all these guys reminded me of the old me. They was coming up and saying, hey, man, uh, did you ask you this? And I just told him, I said, man, um, if he wasn't a man of God, he didn't understand a word I said. Well, this guy, he had a piece of paper upside down, and he slid it across the desk looking at me. He says, he understood every word. So I picked it up and was FI1. And FI1 is the best, according to the world, uh, parole answer you could get. It means you'll be home in 30 days. Yeah. I set it back down. Tears rolled down my eyes, and I slid it back across him, and I said, uh, that's not what I want. He said, excuse me? He said, man, there's guys on this unit that will kill for that. Are you crazy? You're going home in 30 days, 60 days at the latest. You're going. I said, that's not what I want. He said, well, what is it you want? I said, I want an FI-18R to go to the Carroll Vance unit in Richmond, Texas, prison fellowship, <clears throat> IFI, which is a, um, another program that uh, Chuck Colson had birthed throughout the United States, you know, prison fellowship became a part of that. And he said, son, he said, that's another 18 months in prison. I said, I don't care. That's where I want to go. He said, I can do that right here. So he signed off on it. Two weeks later, I get a lay-in. I'm on the chain. And, I'm in the, and, I, and I wasn't supposed to work that morning breakfast because you're on the chain. Um, you know, you get to just chill out, wait for your bus, catch the bus, and go. But I went ahead and went into work. Mm. And uh, the kitchen captain and all of them, man, they couldn't, Billy, what are you doing here? Well, Lanier, what are you doing here? And I'm like, man, I want to work. But you're on the chain, man. Well, I'm glad you came anyways. They opened that grill, let me cook. 
And I'm telling you, with the guys I worked with in the scullery, the kitchen captain, the sergeant and them, there wasn't a dry eye in that place. They were hugging my neck saying, Billy, you know what? We're going to miss you. I said, you know what? I'll miss you too, but not this place. <laughs> and it was just <laughs> nothing but surrounded by the presence of God in these people. And how I look back on it, and I believe that my life that I lived during that period of time right there planted so many seeds in their lives. I'm confident. Uh, anyhow, so I caught the chain and I left. And I was at the Carol Vance unit for 18 months, which is another program. Now, that is a program that people go to, guys, that um, and after your 18 months, you're going home or wherever you're going. And um, I got there and got to participate in a, numerous classes, numerous teachings, and I uh, met some wonderful people. One of my mentors is in my life right now, uh, Daniel De Jesus. He's a Filipino. He became our group counselor, and uh, he's an evangelist. Me and him got really tight. We're in contact to this day. Anyhow, so after that journey right there, um, I was released uh, December 31st, 2011, and um, uh, I think I shared in my other video, my mentor picked me up. And we left there, and within 15 minutes, we had a Fuddruckers restaurant. And we walked into this restaurant. Now, mind you, I've been in prison 22 years. It's the first time stepping out. And we, when I got in his truck, as a matter of fact, he handed me this little box. And I grabbed it. I said, hey, what's this here? He said, it's a phone. Somebody's going to call you in a little bit. I'm like, my phone? I don't know what this is. So we're going down the road and the thing starts buzzing in my hand. I said, what do I do with it? What do I do with this? He said, here, let me see it. He got it and he opened it up, clicked it in here. I'm like, okay. And some friends, some other minister friends were calling me to welcome me home. Yeah. And, uh, we got to the Fuddruckers. I walked in and he's like, go up there and order your burger. I said, absolutely not. Just give me the fattest, sloppiest burger they got. I'll be fine. So he does. And I go to the restroom. I got to share this cause there's a lot of humor in it. I go to the restroom and I went and used the urinal and I'm looking for a handle, a way to flush this urinal. And there is no way. So I turn to walk away, and then the thing flushes, and I turn to look at it. I'm like, what? How'd that happen? You know, it's the sensor deals. Mm -hmm. I had no idea about this stuff. <coughs> so I went over to the sink, put some soap on my hand, and I looked down, and there are no handles for the sink. I am literally looking under the counter and all around for a way. How am I going to turn this water on? What's going on? And unfortunately, this guy comes in, and he uses the sink next to him, and I'm just watching him as I'm lathering my hands, <laughs> and he puts his hands underneath, and the water comes on. I thought, what? So I did the same thing. And, um, yeah, we ate, left there, and then uh, went on to Fertile Ground Christian Transformational Center to where <clears throat> where I began managing it after um, – it was right at four and a half months. Um, mind you, the next day I had to go see my parole officer. And this is the favor of God <clears throat> that he poured on my life is <clears throat> I got a call from Stacy Woods. She was over all the chaplaincy programs in TDC at the time. And she wanted me to come back into the prisons and minister. Mind you, when you get out of prison, you got to wait two to five years before you can ever go back in. Mm -hmm. I wasn't out but a few months. And they called me, wanted me to come back in. Okay, wonderful. This is God's favor. So um, kind of reminds me of Joseph. <laughs> so I had to go see my parole officer. They put a monitor on my leg. It was a curfew monitor, meaning you could be out these hours of the day. After that, you better be in your house. Mm. And I was supposed to have that for 18 months. 
Well, it was right at four months. My parole officer showed up, and he pulled out a pair of scissors, and he said, cut that thing off. I said, are you serious? You cut it off. So I cut it off and handed it to him. I said, man, I ain't got no business out here on these streets after 8 o'clock at night anyways. I'm in the middle <laughs> of third ward, and I'm white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, and it was pretty dangerous over there. I mean, um, for any race, I don't care who you are. Yeah. You didn't have no business on them streets after dark. Next to U of H, I mean, it was almost like gunfire put you to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. It's sad. However, um, and then it was like three weeks after that when the owner of the facility came and asked me if I'd manage fertile ground, to which I greatly accepted. And I managed for three and a half years. And those are years of my life that I cherish in that I, <clears throat> I had the privilege and opportunity of going and meeting with guys in prison as they were interested to come to fertile ground, I'd pick them up from prison. The first thing I'd do is let them get a change of clothes and I'd take them, uh, I'd take them out to eat. I'd either take them to Golden Crown or Luby's or somewhere and, and just, you know, and then I'd take them to Walmart, especially the guys that had been locked up a decade or two, because yeah. I wanted to see their expressions when they walked <laughs> in these places, you know, <coughs> bring them back to the house and, uh, get them set up in their room. And, um, yeah, get them off to the races, buddy. I'll yeah. help them get their Social Security card, their birth certificate, their food stamps, and uh, all this, and get them straightened out. And uh, let them use my car periodically. I'd make little videos of the guys when they do their driving test. Mm-hmm. So I'd do a little video of them parallel parking all that till they'd venture off, you know, doing their <laughs> test. And I'd, I'd put it on uh, DVDs and then give it to them for little memorabilia and stuff. Yeah. It was exciting, man. And then even to this very day, Several of them stay in contact with me, man. This has been years ago, what, 2012, 13, 14, 15. And um, they're in t- contact with me. They uh, are married, uh, got jobs. I, now, they, they not, might not necessarily be in ministry, yeah. but they are involved in the church. They're living uh, productive and constructive lives. And it's just uh, it makes you feel good knowing that God used you to help them get to where they're at. You know, so what's the hardest thing for you personally, or just in general, for somebody who's been locked up for so many years coming out? Because you you got so much recidivism and everything. What's what's the hardest thing for somebody who's been in prison for that long to adapt to, and the free side of the world? Honestly, honestly, when I walked out of prison, no time at all. If you'd have got around me, you wouldn't even known I was in prison. Yeah. If I dressed up, wore long sleeve shirts and what have you, you would never even know I've been to prison unless I tell you. Again, I, I, I told you earlier that I had the mindset, you might be living in prison, prison don't have to live in you. Mm-hmm. So I was determined when I came out of there, all that prison lingo, all that talk, stuff, it's got to stay behind. This is a new journey. So when I got out, I was able to interact and converse with everyone that's you know, uh, like today, I'm basically a social butterfly. Yeah, I can converse with anyone. But what I convey to the guys when I go back into the prison, or even the gals, you're in a wonderful place at this time. Because while you was out here in this society, this world was eating you alive. This world desires your affection and attention. And if it can get it, you're off on a roller coaster ride. So then God allows you to be placed in the confines of a penal institution which is a society within society and it's an opportune time where you don't have no responsibilities 
right? You don't have no bills. You don't have no distractions except for the guys around you, the chaos around you. But you can shut that down. But you have no distractions, no real distractions. You don't have no stressors, none of that stuff there about a job or any of that. So that is the perfect time to get that Bible out and start reading. I tell people all the time, John 14, 26, this is a promise of God. And we need to hold him to his promise, which is exactly what I did. I got to John 14, 26. He said, I will give you the comforter, and he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. That's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So when I read this, I held God to it as I began to read the rest of the word. And he would begin to open my eyes and give me the insights of the in-depth word of the living God. So um, coming out of prison <clears throat> without God, I don't know how you do it. So yeah. I can't relate. You know what I mean? I, don't, I, I just don't know how you can navigate through the stressors and life the way it is out here right now. I'm telling you, if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have lasted a nanosecond. I really wouldn't have. But it's the joy of the Lord and that ongoing relationship with the Lord that makes me excited every day to wake up. Even the challenges that I face. You know, I'm married now. I got nine stepkids. Um, to say that there ain't no challenges in the midst of that would be me telling you a blatant lie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, every day after going through those challenges and then the wonderful job that I, I, I have, it was a man of God that gave me this job. And it was uh, nothing but God how it came about. And uh, there can be some stressors and things of that nature. But you just begin to handle life in a different way. You begin to see life and see people uh, that you're engaged with every day through the eyes of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Helps you to better understand them. So in, in being able to say, I will tell you that most of the challenges that guys face when they get out without Jesus... The challenge they face when they come out is the flesh and the carnal mind. Most of you guys down there in prison, when they get out, their form of celebration is, I need me a girlfriend. Ooh, one more time, whether it be with the drugs, or the alcohol, or all of it together, whatever. Just one more time. This is my form of celebration, mm -hmm. right? So in their minds, they'll convince themselves that I'm going to have one more night of this, and then I'm going to get up. That's the greatest lie they tell themselves because one night becomes two, three, four, five, and then they're off to the races again. Then they're back in prison. Yeah. You with me? And it ain't so much the prison that keeps a person out of prison. You with me? There's people that I've met out here right now that's never been to prison that are locked up worse than I'd ever been. You with me? Mm -hmm. They can't navigate through life and the issues of life, whether it be death, whether it be uh, a difficult relationship, uh, all the challenges, uh, the bills, the job, the inflation, and all this stuff here. And they get so called up to where all of us look for an escape. And oftentimes, alcohol, you want the alcohol because like I did with my children, I don't want to think about it. I want to escape this. Instead of facing reality and facing life on life's terms because you're unable to. So whether it be smoking, drinking, whatever it is, there's an underlying reason why you're doing it. Yeah. And most of the times it's just to 
forget about it all. Forget about it all. <laughs> and again, I can't relate to it because I cannot understand that. But the other thing that guys face when they get out, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get me a job. Right? I'm going to get me a job. And I'm going to get me a car. And I'm going to get me a place to live. And life is going to be wonderful. I'm going to have me a house with a picket fence. I'm going to do all that. Okay, that's wonderful. But there's work to get there, right? Mm-hmm. And then what I've seen with a lot of the guys is having zero communication skills when it comes to sitting down and selling yourself to an employer. You with me? Yeah. They can't do it. I need to convince you to give me a job. I am going to be an asset to this place. You with me? But in order to do that, it's like walking in. Hey, man, you doing any hard? I need a job, man. Mm, no. No, we're really not doing no hiring here right now. Yeah. But you got to have you got to have that confidence. That's I guess cuz you're a very good communicator, probably better than I am, honestly. So, where where did that come from? That's something you developed or have you always been that way or I keep pointing to him. It's nothing but God. Yeah. I'm the one that's truly amazed because of this right here. When I went into prison, I was antisocial. Yeah. If you wasn't angry and you didn't hurt uh, you didn't feel the way I feel. We didn't have nothing in common. Yeah, that's where the saying goes, you show me a man's friends and I'll show you his character. Mm-hmm. You with me? You're only going to yoke up with people that are like-minded. So in looking back in my background, sixth grade education, didn't even finish the sixth grade. You hear me? Yeah. I went to prison when I was in San Saba, te- Texas. I was being transitioned <clears throat> to finally be housed on a unit. This is my early years. And... um I studied for my GED over there for six months. And then they had the people from Huntsville, Project Rio, they came over there to give the GED test, right? The testing. They only do it once a year. And the teacher there, she was trying to encourage me to wait till the following year to take it. And I said, absolutely not. I'm ready to take it. Let me take it. Okay. Put me in it. Not to say that this is no big deal because it was in prison and not out here, but I came <laughs> in second place from valedictorian. <laughs> A sixth grade dropout. And, you know, yeah. God says in his word that he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You with me? I am confounded. I'm totally amazed. I am baffled when I look in the rearview mirror of my life because I'm so undeserving of it. But how did you bring me this far? Do I even really need an answer for it? No, yeah. I'm just thankful and grateful. But that's the God's honest truth. You know, your intelligence and things of that nature don't come from education anyways. Life is built on experiences, brother. You can have all the education that you want. But if you don't have the experience to go with it, does it really profit you? Why do they have internships? (laughs) So that you can go and get some experience to accommodate your education. When you get to both together, you got something going on. You know, so life is built on experiences. Yeah. And it's our experiences that really um, help others. Yeah. And that's the goal. So I, I know you you held people transition out and everything. If somebody's in that period of their life trying to transition, what what are some resources that you know of that well, you there's could two. help anybody else? There's two in the Houston area. Now, I'm up here in northeast Texas now. So we are coming together right now. We're not kicking down doors or anything. I'm just taking it one day at a time. But yet God is opening doors without even trying to kick down doors. Yeah. Uh, so there is a group of us that's coming together right now to hopefully and prayerfully birth one of the first 
trans faith-based transitional facilities up here in Northeast Texas. We're praying and believing uh, that many of the churches will come together uh, with the same calling and passion to help our brothers and sisters whom are incarcerated transition back into society, living productive and constructive lives, hopefully transformed. Um, it's a dire need. I spoke at a Christ United Methodist Church in Houston several years back, and one of the things I encouraged them is that, or I've made this statement that if you're not involved in prison ministry in some shape, form, or fashion, whether it be in praying for the volunteers, whether it be becoming a volunteer yourself, or whether it be you supporting the volunteers, if you become the next victim, don't complain about it. You know, yeah. even Jesus himself said, I was in prison and you visited me. But for the most part, the churches and stuff, um, they tip their nose up and don't want anything to do with convicts or the prisons and things of that nature. But yet, believe it or not, you can go in there. If you, I challenge anyone under the sound of my voice. If you get a chance to become a volunteer or go into the Texas prisons with a volunteer, go one time. And you'll see the genuineness and the authenticity of what worship really is. Because even though you're locked up, you're free. Yeah. When you get around the genuine guys, and for the most part in the chaplaincy programs and the um, church services, those guys are there because they want to be there. Yeah. They're yeah. not getting any favors. It's an amazing experience. In, huh? <laughs> amazing experience, brother. It really is. Yeah. But transitional housing and prison ministry, we need desperately right now. I mean, if the guys get out and they don't have the resources um, that they need, then it's easy to go back to what you're so familiar with. Mm -hmm. I remember when Jesus was crucified, what did the disciples do? They went back fishing. Yeah. That thing that they were so familiar with. And that's what we do is uh, we have a tendency to just reflect back on, man, I've got to survive. You know, i yeah. got to make a living or something. Man, my hustle was pretty good. i just got to be careful. I don't want to get caught. And then you go back to it. Next thing you know, you got caught. And there you are. So, um uh, we need the support. We need a support group. We need uh, people that will help our brothers and sisters as they're transitioning back to society so that they're not overwhelmed with all the pressure. You know, you yeah. can imagine after being there for so long, then you come out. Now you're thinking, man, I've got to get a job. I've got, I got to do this. I've I got to hurry up. i got to catch up where I left yeah. off. That's a deceitful lie, you know, that the enemy puts in our minds. But... um if you have somebody there to mentor you and to help you walk through, you'll do well. Makes all the difference. You'll do well. Yeah. You'll do well. As long as you remain humble. Don't think you need to make up for all that time. Yeah. I wish I could. Take what, take what you have now, huh? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Just be content in all things. That's right. I think that's the biggest lesson to learn from you. Yeah. <laughs> You're free. It's, Pretty content guy. Yeah, I really am. I really yeah. am pretty content. Uh, right now, honestly, I can't even think of nothing that I want or need. <laughs> and that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for doing this interview. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you for the opportunity, brother. Of course, man. Anytime to, to share a story. Hope to see you again soon. Hi, 
I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview. And if you did, go ahead and just like and follow or whatever it is on the platform you're listening to. That just helps me reach more people. Thanks. I saw you just do that. You're pretty neat.